Hey guys, Eric Olson here, and welcome to the final podcast of 2019. I just wanted to take a moment to thank all of our guests from this past year for sharing their knowledge and insight. And I also wanted to thank you, the audience, for joining me on this scientific journey. Thank you, and I wish you the best in the new year. I couldn't have thought of a more interesting guest for our year-end episode. Mark Changizi is an evolutionary theorist, author, and entrepreneur. His self-stated goal is to grasp the ultimate foundations underlying why we think, feel, and see as we do. He's probably most widely known for his 2011 paper on why we get pruny fingers, but he has investigated many other questions about evolution, like why we have forward-facing eyes, why our brains are structured the way they are, why animals have the number of limbs they do, why, why the dictionary is organized the way it is, where emotional expressions came from, and how we acquired writing, language, and music. Mark is also the author of three nonfiction books written for the public, The Brain from 25,000 Feet, The Vision Revolution, and Harnessed, How Language and Music Mimic Nature and Transformed Ape to Man. A fourth book, actually a novel, explores what's next for humans and how our culture will evolve to harness our innate biological capacities. If you're not impressed yet, consider that Mark has also founded several companies based on his research. His most recent venture, Vino, is based on his study of color vision and helps doctors to see what's under our skin. More on that toward the end of the podcast, so stay tuned. But before we dive in, head over to sciencecentric.com support to help keep this independent podcast going. You can also show your support by sharing this episode with a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or following us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at ScienceCentric. All right, enough of that. Let's hear from Mark. Welcome to the Science Centric Podcast. We're so lucky to have you. Thanks, thanks for joining us. This is the last podcast probably going out this year so great to end it on a, on a high note with a great guest uh, great to be here <laughs> great to see you again awesome. you <laughs> so um for people that aren't familiar with you like uh you know you 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 have your fingers in a lot of different pies and and areas of research and interest how how would you define what you do and and sort of your area of expertise yeah well, my PhD is mathematics. I was a sort of a physics math undergrad, PhD math, but I, I really did all that kind of math so I could become a, a more rigorously grounded uh, sort of neuroscientist, uh, cognitive scientist in trying to tackle the, what I foresaw as the fundamental questions of the field. These are the kinds of things in my high school essay, you know, when I was applying for college, that I'm going to go get an undergrad in physics and math and, uh, you know, as much of that as I can so I can someday... Uh, figure out why we became conscious. This is actually what I talked about in my undergraduate, you know, the essay for undergrad. I haven't worked on consciousness at all. I'm not, I, I, I have this feeling now that it's a, it's a mistaken problem. You know, there's some kind of brain blurb that we're all having, but I, I haven't really had much, in fact, ever to say about it. But that was the motivation as like a 17-year-old was to really learn these fundamental skills uh, so that I could be a good theorist in, the, in that area. And the kind of theorist that I am is really more of an evolutionary uh, I'm, I'm interested in the ultimate causes for why we evolved to be the way we are, rather than the, than the proximate mechanisms. So I'm interested, really, like an like really a, 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 an evolution, like an engineer. Why why do we 
why would you design a, a machine or a biological system or a cognitive system or a perceptual system uh, to be that way? And then coming up with hypotheses that are rigorous and figuring out uh, ways, hell or high water, to try to test them. Right. Yeah. I mean, it seems to it seems difficult to test that in a way to to sort of figure out if they're. I mean, because there there isn't really like an ultimate ultimate cause, right? I mean, it's sort of. It, it, some some of our evolution is somewhat historical. It just these are sort of accidents of of um, evolution, right? Well, some things are, but yeah. So, for example, if you find yourself in a, you're, if you're an alien and you entered a, a, a you know, a, a tool store, like you're at Lowe's, you know, or Heckinger's or wherever the, the tools, you know, what is it, Home Depot, and you see all these tools and all these contraptions. Obviously, there are some historical features to them that are, and then there are some aesthetic features, which is maybe more like analogous to sexual selection. But there's a lot of functional features in these 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 products that are hanging from the, the walls. Uh, yeah. You know, and and you would really um, you you should treat it like as an engineer if you're going to attack why these mechanisms are the way they are. Um, in fact, you can't understand mechanisms without understanding the function that those mechanisms are designed. Four. Yeah. yeah. And so a lot of people have this attitude was like, okay, it's totally scientific to study the mechanisms, but it's somehow not scientific to study the functional designs that uh-huh. they're designed for. But that's not even sensible. There is no such thing as a mechanism, period. No, there's just yeah. mechanisms that are designed for things. Um, and you can't understand a mechanism without understanding what it's designed for. In fact, lots of things um, have all of these side effects. Like there's the, when there's a mechanism for something, there's yeah. always other stuff that it does too, because, for example, a toaster. You can imagine if you encounter a toaster, you can grab the the uh, the wire, the electrical wiring. You can spin it around your head, and you can use it to attack people. You know, bang them in the head with it. Sure. And so the mechanism of that electrical wire can turn out. It has mechanisms too, in the sense that it does stuff. You know, and it might have some degree of stretchiness, so that when it bounces off someone's head, it doesn't yank your arm too hard. And you can imagine worse designs for that are better. But anyway, yeah. it's not, in fact, relevant at all, right? That has right. to do. Right. So any kind of, and same thing for even computer programs. Computer programs are designed for some range of inputs, and there's all these range of inputs that they're just they're not that we would say in our field non-ecological <laughs> inputs. They're inputs that you never expected the secretary to type in. You're like, and and if if he or she does. It could totally mess up, you know, the software because the software is not designed yeah. for that. And if you start testing the software on, on all of the non-ecological inputs that a a you know the non the you know the bad secretary is typing in, you would never figure out really what the software is for because it's just going to give you gobbledygook out. Yeah. And if someone says no, I think it's actually it's actually a word processor, and you're only supposed to do these this range of inputs, and then you get these really sensible ranges of outputs. Yeah. Then you understand the mechanisms in the context of what's designed. Whereas if someone then wants to say yes, but you haven't explained all the weird things that it does and all those non-ecological, <laughs> you go, that doesn't really matter. I mean, that does matter if you want to know exactly the mechanism, the, the peculiar, particular software uh-huh. that Microsoft happens to use, and that can be a really good key to figuring out those mechanisms down to, uh, like, you know, the exact way that they did it, because you can find the mistakes and certain kinds of hypotheses about the specific mechanisms will predict certain kinds of of weird behavior on the non-ecological inputs. Yeah. Um, so, so, so you're really yeah. trying to you you you're really trying to suss out what um, what things were sort of it, what the intention and int- 
what the use was like what it was used for what it's supposed to be used for essentially right you could yeah. use it you could use a toaster as you said to bash somebody over the head but that's not what it was <laughs> designed for right. so so it's it's figuring out the sort of uh background of uh, or maybe the the context even that those features evolved in right and yeah. these are testable in the case of showing up at a if you're showing up at a Home Depot, there's ways of testing these things. You can test, well, in fact, let's work out the mathematics of the design mm -hmm. of uh, whatever it is that you're looking at. If someone hypothesizes whether it's a good design to swing a toaster and hit a you can say, no, like, like in the, in the 47-dimensional space of possible things you can spin and hit people in the head, this is like in the worst possible part of the space, <laughs> something like this. We're so easy to, and you can provide, whereas if the ones that are really well designed, you can say, yeah, actually, it's really close to the global optimum. Maybe not, it's not going to be global optimum, but yeah. it's going to be really in that part of the space really well, and that's one kind of argument. And there's, so there's three classes, at least, of ways that you can test functional design hypotheses. One is by coming up with a peculiar prediction about what the morphology or the shape of the machine should be if it really is optimized for that. Yeah. And that's usually working out. And, and so that's a, usually a very nice pointy prediction uh, because if it has that weird peculiar morphology, it, it could only really be for, for that. Another way is behavioral. Uh, you could just ask whether the animal uses it behaviorally in a good way. Like, like let me give you an example, the, yeah. the pruning fingers. You, yeah. So why do we get pruny fingers? Why do your fingers get pruny and wrinkly when you get wet? And so our hypothesis uh, eight something years ago was that in fact this is not some automatic side effect of wrinkling. Uh, in fact, we know it's not an automatic side effect of wrinkling. Turns out that when you get a nerve cut to your arm, um, uh, the sympathetic nerve is damaged. You, you no longer um, get uh, pruny fingers when you get wet. And they noted, doctors noticed this in 1920 so that if yeah. a car accident victim comes and is unconscious and they're injured and they want to know whether there's a nerve cut or not, they would just stick their fingers in warm water and see whether the uh, uh, ring, uh, fingers wrinkle, but even still to this day, it's it's still in, in Wikipedia that it's because of osmosis or something. Yeah, that's what I learned. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the three different ways to test it. One is to say, well, what would the optimal shape wrinkles be? What is actually the best kind of rain treads? And you can actually mathematically work out what the topology, the topography, and the direction that those channels should be if yeah. they really are. And so it's a very peculiar, pointy prediction. That was our paper that came out, and it actually has exactly the kinds of peculiar. Um, uh, uh, channels, river-like channels in a particular mathematical right. sense that you would expect. But another way is to, is to say behavioral does in fact help. You know, this is like, no one, a couple of labs try to do this, but it would be behavioral like ideally get a bunch of people doing parkour and they're in wet conditions without pruny fingers and then in wet conditions with pruny fingers and then in dry conditions with and without <laughs> pruny fingers and like having to do all this kind of dangerous stuff and record the number of injuries and you know this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and then the, so that's more behavior and the third way would be phylogenetic or looking across the, the tree of life which kinds of animals certain kinds of animals which are tend to be in wet and dewy conditions um, and don't have don't have uh, don't have claws like us. Yeah. You, you can predict certain kinds of animals maybe be more likely to have developed this mechanism because they need them, where certain kinds of other animals wouldn't. So there would be three different classes of ways of going about testing it, and they would have analogies for uh, for swinging a toast, you know, for things that you find at Home Depot as well. Um, so they're testable, but you're just a different kind of test. You're not taking typically a piece of meat in the lab and sticking microbes in it. You know, yeah, it's usually not right. that kind of test. Yeah. Right. So the, so the pruny fingers, uh, paper, uh, which is how I first became familiar, familiar with your work. I think it's 
so fascinating. Um, did you did you go through that the, the all three tests for that particular feature? For that, our main our our main paper our, our paper that came out was the first of those, the morphology, and so yeah. it was working out mathematically what is the optimal morphology, the optimal yeah. shape wrinkles. We also did undergrad. I had four, three or four undergraduates at the time that were working on behavioral studies. They, we had all these different kinds of heavy naturalistic kinds of objects, and then they had to get and they had had a tap like you would have their subjects had to move them down and move them up in some kind of pattern. And then there were wet conditions and dry conditions. And the idea was these were heavy and odd shaped kind of things you just might be grabbing in real life. You yeah. know, maybe even grabbing trees. Ideally, I think it's probably more like your own body weight, like when you're a primate either walking. When we wear rain treads, it's because it's on our shoes. It's our own body yeah, weight. This right. is why I'm thinking more parkour. Whereas the only studies that have to do, like, they were dealing with like little marbles, grabbing marbles. And it's like, this is not relevant. I yeah. don't think it's you. Yeah. It's, it's actually rain treads, like treads. Um, so we, and there, there were statistical significance in some of their studies, but they were all undergrad kind of studies that you don't really believe. And I would have wanted to use that as a pilot, then maybe see if we could do something more serious. And we never did. Yeah. And I'm not really that kind of scientist. I'm good at more theoretically working out what is the optimal mathematical structure, yeah. physical mathematical structure. And so that's what the paper was about. But we did begin that. And I tried to do phylogenetic. I, but there, no one, no one knows who, which ones do and which ones don't. Yeah, I, and I didn't, wasn't exactly sure which ones should yeah. and shouldn't because I didn't know enough about like which ones are in really, really dry conditions and have been in really, really dry conditions for you know for millions of years. So that you, so I didn't really know how to do it. But I, I had contacted twenty different labs and said, "Do your primates <laughs> get pruny because you have a particular species?" And they're like, "Heck, if I know, we'll call you back if we find out." But you know, so. Yeah. Macaques, there's those Japanese macaques that are always taking the baths or whatever. You can see, I, I scoured you know, hundreds of those pictures to find, <laughs> find some where you can see their pruny fingers. Sure. So that's yeah. in the paper. But, yeah. That's where I imagine that feature would be most useful is when you're, um, you know, try, like I'm thinking like walking across this, a river with slippery rocks or climbing a log that's wet or something like that where we're having that little extra grip would really pay off. Um, yeah, but, and, and, but just think about when all of your shoes have rain treads. I mean, they have, all of your shoes have some kind of tread, and you're, it's not because because you're walking over the over a stream. It's really just because it's it's dewy or rainy quite often in your life, and so it's, yeah, it's um. Uh, I also want to stay clear from primates or apes in water because there's the other whole you know humans became special because we were the water ape and oh yes people, i've heard that people then say oh it's because you thought we were water ape. no it's just <laughs> we're all wearing train treads now it's not because we think we're the weird water ape you know, I have to stop it. <laughs> so um so that's that's i mean that's a pretty uh i think that was a bit of a deviation from from some of your other work in terms of you know looking at um you know limbs i mean most of your work is around vision correct um, Most of the work that has gotten well known, so I, I work on why neurons are shaped the way they are. You know, the op, how do they get from one place to, let's say, a whole bunch of leaves? And it turns out they're really uh, optimally shaped. Why um, uh, arteries, uh, coronary arteries, and so neurons, how are these things um, designed? Because these are actually NP-complete problems. They're really, really hard, non-polynomial time problems. And it turns out that the way they can solve these NP-complete problems is by very simple local mechanisms which get them between three to five percent of perfect volume optimality and by a cheap heuristic you know genetically not very computationally sophisticated method so mm -hmm. i have a bunch of older work that's about why uh, why we have as many limbs as we do why animals have uh -huh. five way have five digits on each hand 
and thus 10 fingers in the base 10 system. So I have a history of, of things more on that line. So that why it actually fits some of my earlier work yeah. quite well, the pruny fingers. But a lot of people I came on the radar only by virtue of the, uh, the vision-related things or, or the harness uh, uh, language evolution kinds of things. Yeah. A lot of the... A lot of the criticism that I hear of about evolutionary biology and also evolutionary psychology is something um, I think maybe Stephen Gould coined the term, which which is just so stories that right. this idea that you know you're sort of you're sort of concocting a story that matches the current you know current data or the current use of a particular uh, feature. Um, what do you think about that? Is that is that something that can happen, or is it? Um, uh, is it a risk in, in doing that kind of work? I'd say that there's a lot of that that has historically gone on and still goes on by folks in their conclusion or the discussion at the end. It's not an evolutionary paper per se, but they just, you know, in the middle of the discussion, they'll start throwing out some stories, you know, and yeah. sometimes those stories stick and it's just what people say. There was never any real study for it. Yeah. So, but there's a, there's a, you know, a class of evolutionary biologists who have always focused on on trying to understand the animal in the context of its environment, the ecologists who who are really trying to pose design-related functions. Here's and so why is it that the underside of the fish is darker or no lighter than the top of the fish? Right. What is it called? It's uh, um, whatever the countershading. Countershading. Um, and yeah. then testing. Well, is that the optimal? Yeah, actually, that's exactly what you'd want because when you're underneath, it, then it blends in with the sky. And in fact, can you test to see well those that are countershades, and then you go and you paint it the opposite? Are they a little more likely to get eaten? That's then a behavioral kind of test, and then they can right. go show the animals that are deep dwelling because they're never they're they're never going to be seen from above from below. Do they are they li as likely to be countershaded? For you know they they do all those three classes of tests all the sure, time. Sure, sure. And no one complains. Well, some people probably complain about those areas too, but it's it's more as you start to approach brain. Start, as soon as you start to show, especially approach anything human, then suddenly there's a whole different standard, and uh, um, that that happens in sort of a. Like, no, you can't study that anymore, and you can't test it. It's, you can't even pose rigorous, testable hypotheses. Like, no, people have been doing that for 100 years, yeah. and it's actually counterproductive because, again, you cannot understand the mechanisms for anything without understanding the designs that they're and, – and this also then has come – well, you, and you actually it looked like you almost were doing it before. You were afraid to say design, or you were afraid to say something teleological, suggesting sure. purpose. Yes. And I think that's just – that's a crazy thing, too. People have gotten to the idea that you can't say – purpose-related things, but that's the genius of natural selection, is that natural selection really designed things. It's not that there was no design, it's just that there was no designer. That's what's so beautiful. You get design yeah. without, a, without a designer. Yeah. Right. Not yeah. that you don't get any design at all and there's no designer. No, look, there's design. <laughs> yes. The eye is foreseeing, and if you've painted yourself into, in, philosophically so that you can't even say that the eye is for, teleo teleologically loaded for, yeah. foreseeing, then you've got to start talking in weird circles that are just equivalent to that anyway. And ultimately, we know you're just trying to say four, and it's, <laughs> and it's ridiculous, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think I think people get nervous about the the intelligent design, uh, you know, using the word design because then that could be construed as you know intelligent design, meaning that there's yeah. a designer, right? And right. So so I think having been in sort of science communication circles, I've sort of um, been taught or trained or somehow that you know I, sh I shouldn't use the term design but i but i yeah. get i get the idea i mean um it, it can have sort of a, a a localized design factor without there being some prime 
cause behind it, you know? I mean, I, I, that makes sense to me. Well, and I would still say there's a cause, and this is also the weird thing about evolution, because the, the mechanism that evolution leads to a mechanism that, that computes or instantiates the design. Yeah. But the mechanism of evolution that brought about that mechanism that does that design, and it is a mechanism, the mechanism of evolution, right? Sure. It's just, but it's a weird mechanism. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's like more like doing, uh, uh, you know, uh, evolution, uh, a genetic algorithm, something like that as your mechanism. Right. But involving real animals killing each other and eating each other and <laughs> differentially surviving for, you know, hundreds of millions of years. And it's just, a, that's just like, a, a, that's the mechanism, right? This yeah. really slow, arduous, painful, awful, you know, mechanism. Yeah. And so right. that's not a pretty mechanism. It's not a mechanism that you can, yeah. I mean, people study like the, the details of the evolutionary mechanism itself, how do genes in fact do what they do from generation, all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's the cause, right? In that sure. case, those sure. are the causes for how we got those uh, mechanisms that instantiate uh, designs. That's how the design happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, yeah, and it's, it's organisms trying to fit their environment to be the most successful uh, reproductively, essentially. I mean, they're, um, so if the environmental factors change, then, then the design of the animal essentially changes. I mean, that's, it's sort of a, a fit, uh, rather than a, uh, sort of a top down, uh, design in, in the way that we would think of designing a chair or designing a, um, right. You know. And even in the case of cultural evolution or, you know, design, much of what we think of as design done by really smart humans, is really a lot more evolutionary like, you know, cultural evolution. Yeah. Um, a lot of times the people are designing something, but it's really on the backs of all of these thousands, it, you know, it's just, it's all of these um, millions and a long history of, of designers which keep tweaking and tweaking and tweaking and none of them understand the optimal chair per se. Yeah. They couldn't have derived from first principles of the optimal human chair, but over time, thousands of these and the market demands of people buying some and not buying the others, slowly but surely we find yeah. these sort of sweet spots of human chairs and seats and so forth. And this gets to the other kind of angle when I'm not dealing with evolutionary sort of biology on the natural selection side is, is the cultural selection side, arguing sure. that the reason that we came to have writing and speech and the arts and a lot of what has turned us into these things that don't seem like apes anymore. We seem to be above and beyond, astronomically so, beyond our nearest relatives is not because we're biologically astronomically beyond, we're just quantitatively smarter than them. But once we got social and once cultural evolution got up and running, it was another blind designer that can design things um, much smarter than a human can and gave us writing and gave us speech and, and, and not because we evolved to have language. But so, this, you know, this I'll just mention one for those that haven't heard about it. The reason that we have writing and we know we didn't evolve to read like not, we don't have areas in our brain to design sure. reading. It's because writing over time evolved so that the letter shapes look like contour junctions or object junctions in the world, the way that contours in natural scenes intersect one another. Mm -hmm. So for example, you know, the corner of this, you know, that you, you'll end up with a Y junction in certain spots where the three contours meet. You might get an L junction here. You uh -huh. can get T junctions when my arm goes behind one con side of my arm going behind makes a T junction. You work out the space of all three contour combinations. There's 36 of those. And then you can ask, you're going to show some of these happen commonly in, in, in the world with opaque objects. Uh -huh. Some of these happen rarely, and you can work out which ones are really common, which ones are really rare. And the prediction is if, if cultural evolution over hundreds of writing systems has shaped 
writing to look like nature so that our brains are good at can, you know, process these things. Uh, and you should find that the shapes of writing look like the shapes of nature or that yeah. the ones that are more common in nature are also the kinds of shapes that you find in writing. And that's, in, in fact, exactly what you find. So this is the only reason we can read. We read so well, it's like an instinct. We read probably more than we listen, or at least we read. We, we're reading just as much as we're listening potentially every day. We read so well that if you didn't know any better, you would think we had evolved to read. We even have visual word form areas. It turns out we even call the areas visual word form reading areas of the brain, even though we know they're not strictly speaking reading areas because we've only had writing for 3,000 or plus or minus years. And most of us have great grandparents that probably didn't even read at all. So it's a really, yeah. it, it, it's not, it's, there's no way we have brain areas for this, but it seems like an instinct because cultural evolution has been shaping these things so well so that they can harness our visual object recognition system and transform it into this new kind of function, namely reading. Uh-huh. So if you were trying to have us read um, using barcodes or fractal patterns or something like this, it would just be hopeless. We would just still be chimpanzees sitting here, you know, smarter, smarter than chimpanzees, chimpanzees <laughs> sitting around saying, screw this, I'm not even gonna try. You know, it would take like an so, hour to, to read one sentence. So you're saying that our, our something like writing that is that has there's been a cultural evolution of writing to match something that we would normally encounter in nature is that what that's exactly right okay and that's 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 the trick in getting an ape because we're not we're not plastic a lot of people think okay the reason that we're different than all the other animals is that we're so plastic our brains are so plastic we can learn so much whereas they're all instincts no there's no difference we're just as much piles of instincts as they are, and we need to be. That's what makes us smart. Things that can learn anything aren't very smart. If you haven't, if you're just born as a big blank slate, then you just don't learn very well. Yeah. It takes it would take forever to learn anything, and you're not going to learn even learn that very well. Things that learn well, it's because they already have innate priors that get them to quickly learn what they need to learn incredibly quickly. Uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And so that's what we can do. We can only do those certain things. We seem to be so amazingly bright because the world is, keeps as the cultural world, the art, yeah, world of artifacts that humans have created, yeah. um, is so good at shaping these things all around us that we now take ourselves to be the reading and writing ape. Mm-hmm. You know, and I call it this human 2.0. And we take central to our current humanity this ability to read and to have language that most people tend to imagine that we, we evolved to have language, like spoken language. But I don't think that that's, that's no more likely to be part of our innate heritage. It's, again, a product of cultural evolution. Mm-hmm. But it's completely radically transformed what it means to be human, which is why I think it's, we're human 2.0 on that basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I believe that someone looked at, you know, uh, say, like, the syntax of sentences and found that there's only, like, really three or four different uh, ways that we arrange, you know, verbs and objects and nouns versus, mm-hmm. like, all the different ways you could imagine that we could have, uh, uh, you know, organized sentences. But uh, across the, across the world, there's, there's, there's these patterns across different cultures and things like that. So that would, that would seem to argue that there, there's something that uh, is there. That's not a blank slate that we're, that we're sort of slotting things in specific to our culture, but there's, there's this underlying biological pattern that's already been formed. Um, and, and that, that, you know, infants can learn language much faster than it was just some process of trial and error, that there's already these patterns established in our, right. in our brain. And so it, it, this kind of position is, uh, I mean, traditionally, the two prongs of this debate are sort of Chomsky and Pinker, mm-hmm. which is that we have innate language um, that we evolved over, over 
tens of millions of years or mil- ten millions of years something to have um, language itself as a as a as a capability of our brain, and then the other side just no, we're the plastic ape. We learn to do all kinds of things. We go bull riding, and we didn't evolve to be riding big bulls, but we do that. And we drive. There's all this stuff that we do that we didn't evolve to do. Yeah. We're plastic. We can we can just do that. And this is neither of those arguments, right? It ends up saying it, it ends up like an instinct, just like Pinker's arguing. In fact, everything that Pinker argues that is so much like an instinct is right. But the reason it and, 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 and Pinker's also right that we're not blank slaves. We, we can't be like the other side. But we, it's not actually an instinct, it, but it's just that it happens to be based upon instincts that we have that were not language-related at all. Right. And the, the, the plasticity really wasn't in the brain. The plasticity was the cultural plasticity, which can figure out how to shape these artifacts to harness those non-language-related innate capabilities so in the in the case of the shapes of letters for example um you you mentioned they're they're mimicking contours of things that we might encounter in the environment i mean contour conglomerations you know contour uh-huh. like pairs of contours or three contours and how they intersect on object junctions we call these often object junctions uh-huh. where where the contours intersect in complex three-dimensional environments of opaque things mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is really interesting. I mean, this is, I think this is where your, where your work is, right? I mean, it's, it's the, the intersection of sort of design and, um, evolution, if you will. I mean, that's, that's so cool. Um, yeah, and so that, that, the, that letter shape stuff and then the next book, Harness, which was about music and speech, that's where sort of the, the, the work up that historically my work was more about the design just on the natural selection side. Right. That's where it sort of came more into the cultural evolution uh, uh, side as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess I guess my only thought on that is that are when these things first sort of appeared, say language or writing, music perhaps, excuse me, <clears throat> uh, language, writing, or music, were these things suboptimal in the sense that they they were not mimicking things that were in our environment well so i don't i, I think surely they probably were but yeah. i don't have any evidence for that i mean right so obviously in the, in the beginning of writing they were they were themselves pictographs very often they just looked like stuff comp, more complicated stuff yeah. <clears throat> and then they probably they got reduced but they were still logographic in the sense that one symbol for one word, having a whole meaning of a whole word. Um, so, and, and you still find some logographic nature in the logographic, uh, sort of sim- uh, pictographic nature to some extent, let's say in Chinese, where yeah. at least those that know the history, yeah, you can kind of see, like as some of them seem to have, but have some reference, you know, historically to something. But anyway, you can sort of, it has enough junctions and stroke that it's more of an object level uh, symbol. Yeah. In terms of the kinds of it has a, for a simple drawing, like we do a simple drawing of a cat or a monkey, like the way that that little simple cartoonist would, it has enough for a whole object. Whereas once you go to uh, phonemic writing, like our kind of writing, then you have each each letter is just standing for a part of a spoken word, and now you want it to be the case that the entire written word, you'd like your entire written word to be object visually object like, mm-hmm. which means that if you're writing at the level of 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 the phonemes of a written of a spoken word. Then you want your phonemic writing to be subobject-like, which is what object junctions are. 
So you want your, you know, each letter of the word to be a, an object junction so that when you combine them together, you have something that's roughly the visual complexity of an object. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's, so we were really designing more at the level of the end of we as in terms of, uh, uh, like Latin, English speaking, we're using Latin letters that th- those are ending up designing for at the level of the, the phonemic level. Rather right. Than the whole level. Yeah. Well, I know Chinese, uh, I've studied it a little bit, the characters, um, I mean, there's so many characters. There's like 5,000, I believe, in the whole thing. I mean, some of them aren't in, in use as much as others, but there's something like 5,000 characters, which is pretty unwieldy when you think about the fact that we can, you know, establish, uh, we can, you know, write things with 26, is it 26 in the alphabet? In the alphabet? Yeah, yeah. yeah, 26 characters, and we can get so many more um you know, ideas and words out of those than 5,000. So I could, I can see that there is some like, but between, and, and someone will probably would argue with me about that, but I could see that there's a, there's sort of a shift to something that's more efficient. Yeah. Um, Well, I I wouldn't want myself to claim that, that I, I, and and I'm not an expert in Chinese, but I've heard, and I don't fully understand, but that even though there's 5,000, 50,000, there's so many different, (laughs) that there are substructures within them that, there's visual substructures that are repeated and used in other cases, and even though they're not themselves meaningful per se, would never be used by themselves. Right. Those repeated uses have a sub subobject nature that they kind of learn and helps the brain. So I think it is it's more complicated than 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 I even know how to even yes enunciate. But I don't fully understand. But I was more, and I I lost my train of thought. The first pictographs, however, yeah. Um, so the, some some people say, well, of course, language. Uh, of course, writing looks like nature because pictographs, of course, were trying to look like nature. Yeah. But the real question is, even if that was the first thought of the first, uh, uh, is why over evolutionary time, things could have evolved in random different, all these different, it could have been some kind of funky binary system or who knows what. No, but it's maintained, it's, it's culturally evolved to maintain, uh, it's been selected to continue to look like nature. And in this art in the case of Latin letters, like sub-objects, in the case of logographics, like objects themselves. It's yeah. selectively maintained this because this is how you design and maintain a system that's be, yeah. to be uh, good for um, our visual system. I would bet that if there were some ways to measure over those long histories, you could maybe come up with some kind of arguments that it's actually been getting better, um, especially since the very, very beginnings, if you had data from the very, very beginnings. Yeah. But I'm not sure how good those data are from the, you know, from the, by the time you have good data on them, no, I'm not sure. It, there, this might be testable. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, okay. but it would be it would be tricky. Yeah. <laughs> hey there. We'll get back to the interview shortly. I just wanted to take a moment to ask a favor to continue to bring you great science content. We need your help building our community. There are several ways you can help out. One, tell someone you know about us. Word of mouth carries a lot of weight. Two, follow us on social media. We're at ScienceCentric on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Or number three, write a podcast review on iTunes. Reviews help this podcast get noticed. Thanks for your help. And now back to the show. So um, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about um, one of your business ventures, which is called Vino. Is that, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, Vino Optics. Vino Optics. Uh, I immediately thought of red wine for some reason. <laughs> well, it was, I mean, the, so it, this is about blood, right? So yes. Our, our, it, blood and wine, at least in the sort of yeah. 
the Christian tradition, there's this idea of blood and wine and the <laughs> stuff of life. And so sometimes you're drinking wine and you're thinking this is the stuff of life. I don't know. There's something like a long metaphor that goes back. Yeah. There. I don't know what's the best name, but that's the, sort of the, the origins of the yeah. name. Um, the so, the blood. So the idea, yeah, sorry. So, so the idea is that you can, you can put on these glasses, which are sort of tinted a reddish color and somehow that helps you see people's veins better. Right. Um, and, and what 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 would that what is that used for, and, and how does that work? So, um, let me quickly answer, and then I, I give a yeah. fuller answer then because I, I should give you the background here. Yeah. So there, it, it, we have a variety of different technologies that do this. Um, it's not because it's purple; it has nothing to do with the tint. Um, when you get more oxygenated, your your skin that's more oxygenated is redder. Skin mm-hmm. that's less oxygenated is sort of greener or blue greener, like mm-hmm. the veins when you see your veins. Right. And so that's undergirded by uh, how oxygenated the hemoglobin is under the uh, under the uh, skin. But it turns out that in the spectrum of hemoglobin, it's complicated. It's an ugly thing. So that although overall, when it gets more oxygenated, it leads to redder. There's some narrow bands of light where if you actually just look at those bands, they're like doing the wrong thing. They're contributing to a greener signal rather than a redder signal when it gets more oxygenated. Hmm. So if you just block, if you can find technology that just has deep notches, they're called notch filters, that mm-hmm. block those bad bands or counter bands, then you're seeing this, then, then all of the, the color modulations that you see on the face by virtue of you know blushing and blanching and whatever, or, or oxygenated skin versus deoxygenated skin, you're gonna see those in a much enhanced way uh. because, and you're not hardly, you're hardly blocking anything because these are very narrow bands that are doing the wrong thing. But by blocking them, every, the color looks pretty much the whole world looks the same, except that you're seeing these color modulations on the faces as well as oxygenation uh-huh. areas of veins better. Um, it turns out that the technology, cause there's, diff, there's, a, there's 50 different ways of doing this that are really boring to talk about <laughs> they all have weird side effects. And the one that we found that has the deep notches in the place that we want them also has Incidentally, just the shape of the dye that you use ends up looking sort of purplish, oh, okay. which is not functional at all. Because um, we have other ones that have other side effects that we didn't like in terms of selling, because they have rainbow effects on the periphery, which oh. which are we didn't like. Anyway, they're you know slightly blue greenish, uh-huh. but still have the bands blocked. So anyway, the purple, the, the actual tint of it doesn't have anything to do with it. The tint is a sort of just an incidental side effect. Um, so the background behind that is why you know, oxygenation of blood under the skin sounds peculiar, boring, medical, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, for 100 years, so the, here's the question is, um, dogs, I'm looking at dogs in the park actually right now, um, dogs and bunny rabbits and horses, they have, they have you know, white and black, they have grayscale, and then they have yellow-blue. As in terms second- of their vision. In terms of yeah, they're two, they have a two-dimensional palette of colors that they can see, yeah. and pri- some of us primates, um, but not all the primates, have this third dimension of red-green. Uh-huh. Uh, birds and reptiles and other things, they often have even a fourth dimension, but anyway, their third dimension is not like our third dimension, because what's peculiar about our red-green is that um, bunny rabbits and dogs have one low-wavelength-sensitive sen- low cone and another medium-wavelength-sensitive cone. And you'd expect that if you want a third cone, this is the spectrum, you know, the 400 nanometers, uh, 700, you'd have a third cone like over here, so they're uniformly distributed across the, the spectrum. But what you in fact find is that you've got the same low one, and then they popped up another one right here. Like for primates that have color vision, their sensitivities are right next to each other. Mm-hmm. And so for a hunt, so the question is, why do we have red-green 
vision. Why do we have this third dimension? And for 100 years, they thought it had something to do with finding fruit in the forest. And then more recently, there was an idea, well, maybe it has something to do with young edible leaves versus they're often a little bit of a red-green difference. And I didn't didn't seem like a good argument to me because we we primates that do have red-green vision have the same thing. There's no var- there's no variability or hardly any variability in this very retained kind of design, yeah. and yet the the what they're, the the diet across the primates that have yeah. it is incredibly varied, even from you know uh, even from animal to animal, much less the yeah. different species that have it. It's just they have crazy diverse diets. So it, it occurred to me that my hypothesis was that I think it has something to do with emotional signals. Um, on the face, and that one of the most important things is these are honest signals. By the way, when you when you blush or flush or in these kinds of red green, these kinds of color modulations uh-huh. on the skin, you can't control. You can tr- you can try to smile and fake an a- anger and fake sadness, that, you know, on the muscular expressions, but you can't fake the color ones. So these are particularly important signals. Um, and even before we were purposely signaling them, we may have had some natural like I'm just deoxidated because I'm exhausted, and you may want to see this in somebody else. So. By virtue of having this third cone, it turned out, so my hypothesis was, well, maybe this is actually optimized for seeing emotional expressions, color, yeah. spectral-based emotional expressions on the face. And then it turns out, and here, here's the morphology side again, is that it turns out that in order to sense our human blood getting oxygenated versus deoxygenated, you actually have to have both of these cones in exactly these spots in order to sense it become becoming oxygenated or deoxygenated. Uh-huh. It has to be right there in order to sense these. It turns out this little thing that wiggles so, in just the right way. So when somebody's blushing, their 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 skin, their blood vessel, the blood under their skin is becoming oxygenated. Is that what's happening? Or it's showing the oxygenation. Showing in oxygen parts because the you know in your capillaries is where it's transitioning from oxygenated into the cells. All the oxygen gets eaten up or whatever. And then the yeah. CO two, and then it's the oxygen. So in those. These are complicated mechanisms, but you have somehow we've evolved. In the beginning, I presume we weren't doing those signaling because yeah. we didn't have eyes that could see them. Right. But then there was a coevolution. Some someone, you know, someone accidentally had the sensitivity and could suddenly see some of the non-signals because they weren't purposely signal purposely signaling at that point. He could see stuff. He could read stuff, emotional and health-related um, things that were just being accidentally signaled. And then over time, that ability then they started to signal on purpose. You know, it, and so it went back and forth for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but but it's by virtue of of, of ways of, of uh, basically showing different parts of those capillaries, and I don't really understand those mechanisms at all. But it turns out you have to have our peculiar kind of red green uh, cones in, in order to see it. Um, the other one of the other predictions was that the animals, if you have color vision, well, you better be naked. Uh huh. You better have a naked face, naked body. Some so the primates that with color with this extra dimension of color vision, they're naked. They've got naked faces, naked rumps. Interesting naked chests and, and naked nearly all over like we are yeah um and so there's and there's a lot of sort of uh, other kinds of evidence that's it's certainly really uh, doctors for hundreds of years even since dalton dalton's the the, the atom guy like you know he, he hypothesized atoms but dalton was also a colorblind um uh, physician and he had complained how notoriously bad he was at recognizing whether it was mud or blood on skin and, and there's a long history of colorblind doctors realizing their inability to see the the they weren't really complaining so much about the emotional signals but the health related signals couldn't tell when someone's about to faint they just had no idea yeah asked to say i've got i've got an infected eye and they have no idea which eye is infected on their patient um even though it's obvious everybody else so um, so just by virtue of being colorblind that that makes you unable to do that sort of intuitive diagnosis of people that's right yeah and it's 
I mean, colorblind people complain about, you know, red lights and various things in the real world, but in the real world, it's usually not the case that um, two things that are trying to be distinguished are purposely, perfect, perfectly indistinguishable. Because in order to perfectly make them indistinguishable to a red-blind person, you pretty much have to be, a, you know, the, an ophthalmologist creating the chart, you know, the kind of design. He's designing it to be, he's just messing with you. Right? Yeah. In real life, you end up with some brightness, you know, some grayscale difference or some blue-yellow difference that's it's harder to distinguish because it's missing this, this further difference. But you mm. can usually tell. Whereas in the case of oxygenation versus deoxygenated, it's exactly the difference that a red-green deficient is deficient at. Mm -hmm. So they're disproportionately affected as, as medical personnel and as color, as, as emotional, you know, they're sort of emotionally, uh, spectrally emotionally blind. Interesting. Um, and so it's a disproportionate problem, but they're often not aware of it because these color signals, even on those who can see them, you're not consciously seeing them. Yeah. When you suddenly see that your spouse or, you know, is something's wrong and she, you know there's no no tears yet nothing on their face but they their face has changed and you can see it you you, know, yeah. you don't go oh your face has changed color it's <laughs> moved a little bit this way in the two dimensional space no you just immediately feel and see it and you react but you're not consciously aware of it is there is there any evidence that this that um, primate species that are more social have this um, color vision uh, this red green color vision versus versus more solitary species um not that i i i'm not a, i don't have an, okay so no there's no evidence of this I, I i'm trying to recall whether i once was posing that and whether i tried to find evidence for it and didn't even know the, what kind of evidence i could get so right yeah. now i don't have any evidence i was just i was just I was just thinking about um there's i i remember reading something about the the about the, the the eyes of domestic dogs uh sort of evolving to have whites of the eyes so that that humans could kind of see their mood um right, and and right. you look at at wolves and other species and they don't have the whites um yeah, and just right. and and so I want, i'm just wondering if something like that might have evolved um to increase you know if you have increased social activity then you need to uh kind of be aware of the emotional state of you know your neighbors and and and, and, and other animals you're living with so i don't know just throwing it yeah, out yeah no there. it's a perfectly good cool question just i have yeah. in the case of the, in the case of the whites of the eyes and the dogs it, off the cuff yeah Wolves also are incredibly social animals. They don't True. need to be with humans to be incredibly True. social animals, and they need to see the whites of each other's eyes too. So, not I don't fully follow that. I've heard the maybe it's, elsewhere too. Yeah. yeah, maybe maybe wolves are included in that. Maybe maybe it's not uh, just. Um, maybe it's you have to go a little bit further back in the evolutionary oh, see, yeah. tree to to animals that aren't as social as wolves. But um, yeah, but 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 yeah. I, again, it's it's demonstrating this idea that that there's some kind of adaptive benefit to being able to read the emotions or communicate the emotions of your, um, you know, pack member or whatever you want to call it. Um, right. And it's also, if you've had kids, I mean, it, it's, I, th I don't know, I think it's going to be health related and emotions. And mm -hmm. I don't know whether it's 50, 50 or 10, 90, I don't know. But if you both, between adults, or you, you, sometimes you see that you need to lie down, you're ready to faint. Yeah. But also kids somehow, if you've ever had kids and, you know, if, if, if they're trying to poop like a little infant, like, as soon as they do this, they're, kind of, they're purple immediately. You know, <laughs> everything is exaggerated on the kid. Of course, you're colorblind, you don't see any of this. Yeah. Um, and if they're suckling and they're not breathing well, 
and that's it's a kind of a if you think about it, they're, they're like their, their entire face is basically being smothered during this process. You kind of have to be really aware of whether the breathing is happening appropriately. Yeah, you probably have to be on your toes, and so one of the best ways to see that, and of course, parents aren't consciously thinking about this; they just see and react. So I don't know. Uh, certainly, those sorts of issues would have been there, and the child isn't signaling anything. These things would have been being signaled um, accidentally. So just yeah, uh, yeah. Accident. Of course, they may not have been That's, visible. Yeah, because of the faces would have been potentially furry, but presumably in the beginning. There was still some visibility around the eyes, I and mean, there was some visibility. You could see these things, and then over time, you would have co-evolved better, more and more having better color vision, and then more and more loss of fur. So, in some sense, nakedness and color, red-green color vision, are on opposite sides of the same coin. Yeah, you know, they evolved together. Yeah, uh, probably difficult to suss out, you know, which which drove which. Um. Yeah, um, yeah. It, I mean, just co-evolution. They're just sort of both both happening yeah. yeah um so cool so so you took this this sort of facet of of primate vision and then and then turned it into an invention essentially that that could help and who who is vino for who what, what who's it helping well originally and still to this day our main market is is paramedics nurses and it's just protective. There's no battery or anything. It's just it's protective eyewear you should be wearing anyhow. Right. But by virtue of it blocking these sort of bad, bad bands of light, you're augmenting your ability to see the oxygenation modulations. And so it actually helps you see even just health states. You're not yeah. aware that you're, the doctors, again, who are colorblind are not seeing these health states, and they're really annoyed. Yeah. But the doctors who are seeing the appropriate health states are totally unaware that it's a cool power to have, actually. They just, yeah. they just do it with naturally. But by having these on, you're actually seeing these even better. Yeah. But we don't market for that because most people don't understand that that they're using that. In fact, even 30% of of the symptoms listed in medical diagnoses still mention the color, the pallor, the acute pallor of the skin. So mm-hmm. even to this day, ever since the Greeks, it's part of that. And so having to be able to see that even better um, is helpful. But really, it's just a vein enhancement. It's just a vein finder glasses. Glasses, just wear yeah. them. Your hands are free. You can use normal light. You don't have to put like some weird light on. You don't have to, it's, a, it's, a, it's affordable rather than several thousand dollars. And, you know, it's not virtual reality or anything. And, and so we, it's uh, nurses, phlebotomists, paramedics. Now, we also have a colorblindness market as well uh-huh. because it's a, a, augmenting the very thing that red-green deficiencies are deficient at. Yeah, And right. so that's our other market as well. Oh, that's cool. It's really cool. Hey, I just wanted to take a quick pause to thank HostGator, this episode's sponsor. HostGator is one of the world's top 10 largest web hosting companies with over 8 million hosted domains. They have around-the-clock support, and all shared web hosting plans include a 45-day money-back guarantee. I've personally used HostGator since 2008 for all of my web hosting needs, and I couldn't be happier. Sign up today using the promo code SCIENCE, and you'll receive 25% off any new hosting plan. Now on with the show. So one of the other um, projects you're working on um, is um, something called the Human Factory. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? That that's like that's really looking at design and sort of user interfaces and things like that, correct? Yeah, I mean, so I, I I've been involved in the Human Factory is 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 is. I, I do occasional consulting for a lot of different firms here and there over the years. Uh-huh. The kind of background that I have on understanding the visual system and what it's designed for and how to and how culture has sort of uh, over time culturally evolved to harness or to create 
interfaces that are stimulating that are optimized for us, including the arts and things like this, yeah. um, has led to certain kinds of interactions with me in, in industry. And most people don't think of you know writing or, or speech, the sounds of speech as interfaces, but in some sense that's exactly what they are. Yeah, you're tricking this this aid by having these interf- these 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 stimuli that look like object junctions in nature, suddenly you can interface and transform us into this new kind of creature. I mean, this is sort of not answering your question directly, but when I was young, human-computer interaction, the field of human-computer interaction, sounded like the most boring thing I had <laughs> ever heard. And it still might be boring like in practice to do it. Yeah. So boring. It's just like the least... But now I've come to completely switch because... Maybe some of those little things, like let's tweak it to be a little bit better versus a little bit worse. But if you are, if you tr- want to take an ape like us and get us to read, and again, you're trying to use barcodes that we use at stores, at grocery stores, it just would never take. And or maybe it would barely imagine something like that, and we're all sitting yeah. there. It would be some funny invention that people would just never go anywhere, right? Right. And still be apes. But when it works well. You don't even notice it. it. Doesn't even feel like anything. You learn it incredibly quickly, and kids do learn to read incredibly quickly. And it, it takes them longer than 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 speech, but that's because parents are speaking, throwing words at them constantly right. since they're born. But they're not throwing words at them constantly since they're born. Um, and it, it's utterly transformative. It really transforms us from ape to man. I'm not even exaggerating. That's the subtitle of my book, Harness. Just you know that how language and music music mimics nature and transformed ape to man. And really. HCI, human computer interaction, that the kinds of principles of interfacing um, with a brain and doing it better is utterly transformative and is almost magical because that's yeah. who we are today is by virtue of principles along those lines. And so yeah. those kinds of principles are what I'm are, are kind of what this human factory is getting at and but focusing more on industry and the kinds of things that one can do. Um, for different kinds of a whole variety of, of different kinds of companies. Are there things that you see frequently, uh, or a couple of things that you see frequently in terms of, you know, user design that just go counter to what we know about the human vision system that are that are counterproductive? I, I, there are some examples, but one of the interesting things is that often uh, industry, especially if it's a, a vibrant industry has often figured out things. You know? mm-hmm. so, and, and we scientists are just trying to keep up. Yeah. And they're not going to be artists and people in industry who are sort of often have an artistic head, or even if they don't, the conglomeration of the entire industry and all the selection that's happened has given the entire process an artistic head that's really doing a good job. So often they're, they're really discovering sweet spots of human um, perception and, and experience that, that scientists could never just discover. We're lucky if after the fact we might be able to show that it's our sweet spot, uh-huh. but that's only after the fact. So very often, um, I'm in a more of in a position like, yeah, they, this whole industry is. Here's the reason that you're, you guys or those guys are kind of on the right track. But yeah. now that we get that, maybe we can actually design a little better because we sort of understand why that's the right track. Uh, okay. I'm rarely. I'm sometimes asked to go give you know keynotes on things like this, and they want me just to take like you know the, the flag out and lead them down to like the optimal. <laughs> Like, guys, this doesn't really work that way. I'm smart enough to maybe after the fact point out how you guys found these really cool sweet spots, but ahead of, like, doing it ahead is a totally different thing. Yeah. You know, that's, there's, yeah. there's I can't do that. Um, so. Are there uh, any examples, are there any examples that you can talk about that are, aren't? Well, on the other side of things. Close? Just, just something you've come across that, that was like, wow, that's working so well. 
I need yeah. to know why that's working so well from a scientific perspective. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, uh, I was going to, of course, writing and speech is sort of, you know, one of the <laughs> biggest examples. But I was going to mention a case where they, uh, I think that they're often doing it wrong. And that's in, in, in 3D movies and in, in stereo. Oh, stereo yeah. Movies. Now, I'm, there's a lot that they're probably doing right. But, but stereo, um, stereoscopy, people tend to think of stereoscopy as, you know, 3D glasses. What 3D glasses are really doing is they're just binocular glasses. Mm -hmm. They're just giving your eyes a different view from the different. And with binocularity, that is having two eye view, it gives you lots of powers. It turns out there's a whole lot of things that we get. Stereoscopy is sort of very visceral. Stereoscopy is that particular three-dimensional sense, like when you're doing the stereograms. It's really strong feeling. I don't know. How, it feels different. But yeah. it, but you're not. That's not what it's about. It's binocular glasses of which you get stereoscopy, but you get all these other things potentially as well. Yeah. But one of the reasons that we have binocular vision, and this is one of the things I've argued in my research, why do we have forward-facing eyes? Most animals that have, have stereo vision, all animals have stereo vision, by the way, and binocular vision in a thin portion of their, because their eyes point sideways. You know, if you're a bunny rabbit or a horse, your eyes point sideways. And when your eyes point sideways, when your eyes are at least swiveled a little bit forward, you have a small binocular region in front. And you wouldn't really, if, if bunny rabbits were to have become culturally evolved to have language and writing <laughs> and movies, they probably wouldn't bother with 3D movies because, you know, they'd have to have just a little narrow screen where you'd have <laughs> all the binocular effects, right? right? It wouldn't be really fun. The reason that we have it is, is in large part because we have large binocular screens because our eyes face forward. So the real question is why do our eyes face forward? And the reason our eyes face forward, I've argued, is not because of three-dimensional three-dimensionality. Uh. We get the reason that we have forward-facing eyes is because um, when you're in a forested, cluttery environment, it turns out you can see more of mm -hmm. your environment. The animals that have sideways-facing eyes are um, either they're animals out in the non-forest, right, the savanna or forest, something. Yeah, the savannah. Whether you're small or you're large, you see the most by having sideways facing eyes because you see everything, yeah. panoramic vision. Right. When you're in the forest, if you're small, then the leaves are all bigger than your the separation between your two eyes. And you can see the most by still having sideways facing eyes. But when you become large and in a cluttered, a forested environment like this, then and you start to get your eyes are more separated than lots of the leaves that are around there, then the math changes. Now... If I put my fingers in front of me, I can still I'm I'm occluding nothing in my view right now. So I still see you. I see my right eye sees sort of the right half of you. My left eye sees the left half of you in the screen. And um, each eye is also having a is has, sees my own hand as rendered as semi-transparent through which I'm seeing you. Right. Because so if you some people have a dominant eye, they can't they you know if they hold up two fingers, they just see one finger and they're not seeing this effect. But as long as you don't have a dominant eye, you should ever since you were a kid, you probably noticed that you could put up yeah. your fingers. And, see both fingers as renders transparent. Well, it takes actually specific mechanisms in your brain to accommodate this kind of stitching together two different views and rendering it as semi-transparent. But by virtue of that, when you actually calculate how much you can see in the world around you, you can actually see more by swiveling your eyes facing forward because in the binocular field, you can see um, much more, you're losing half of your visual field behind you, right. but you're actually gaining more than half in front because when there's layers of clutter, you're able to see beyond that layer of clutter, just like I am now, to layers beyond. So you actually can see a larger part of your environment. Mm -hmm. You can kind of mathematically mm -hmm. uh, sit, uh, uh, calculate these. And you can so kind of, you could probably change the focus of your eye to to um, see things, you know, focus on things far away or close 
Well, that's right. In the case, in the example here, I'm, I'm focusing on you, and on my hand is split into two semi-transparent hands through which I'm seeing you. Yeah. But if I choose to fix, if I choose to uh, focus on my hand, you actually split into two pieces. Yeah. So if you just if you hold your own finger out and you focus on your one finger, you'll see that the screen with me splits into two. So it, actually, in that case, I'm still not missing any of you. Like one, it's my finger still to my right eye. My finger is still including part of part of the screen. And to my left eye, my, that same finger is including part of the screen. But each other eye is seeing what's occluded by that eye. And because the screen is split into two, you still end up seeing everything. Yeah. And it's, if you consciously think about it, it's, it's a weird perception. But in normal conditions, it's not weird at all. Yeah. Your brain knows exactly what that is and knows how, because all the time we're fixating on something. The things that are closer are split and rendered trans, semi trans. Things beyond it are all split mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. in the other direction. And uh, the whole world is splitting all the time, yeah. actually, all the time. Yeah. And you're, it's only weird when you start to consciously try to think it through, but it's, yeah. it's the most natural <laughs> thing ever. So these are the, these are like, actually I came to this idea, I used to be a, uh, I would play Call of Duty, and, and, uh-huh. or Call of Duty, an Unreal tournament back in the day, and I was in a sniper clan. And so our goal was to go like 20 minutes through a whole thing and not die once and kill one or two people. <laughs> like super, never die. And totally, rather than just running and gunning and, yeah, yeah, I killed 60 people. Yeah, but you died 70 times. <laughs> no, not that. You just want to not die. So you'd be hiding in, in a bush. And the problem there is that you could never see out of the bush very well. And I was, it always was frustrating. And I was like, and I said, finally it clicked. And I said, yeah, in real life, when you're in a bush, well, you have two eyes. And when you have two eyes and all this clutter up close, you're kind of seeing through the clutter as if it's not even there. Right. Whereas in, in, when you're playing uh, Call of Duty in Brush or anytime, you are a, you're a cyclops. Yeah, you may be playing with two eyes in front of your computer screen, but your computer screen is just one. Ah, uh, right. right. So every time that you want to like see a little bit over there, you, you keep having to move your body and wiggle. You know, it's like, oh. And every time you do that, <laughs> someone is seeing you and they just kill you from the bush. You wouldn't really want to be in a bush. But in real life, being in a, in, in a bush is very different. And that's sort of what led me down this line of thinking, could it actually be optimal? And it turns out that the animals that are the big ones in the forest is where you start to see more and more forward-facing eyes. So back to 3D movies, Yeah, having forward-facing eyes gives you the ability to have much more interesting environments rather than just having 3D things that are far away or things coming at your head, or sometimes they have gigantic 3D things like entire buildings and cities, like as if your eyes are separated like a mile separate, which is ridiculous. Yeah. They'll sometimes do that. No, it's just that you can actually have you can actually be in the midst of clutter and watch lots of little things moving around you right in your face and actually be more embedded embedded in this this near space between me and you and where my hands are and the stuff that's within this near space. is It's also where stereoscopy, when both eyes do see something, it's where stereoscopy has the best kind of depth perception. But often this space is where both eyes, only one eye is seeing any particular thing. Hmm. And you're very good at that. You have natural mechanisms allowing you to that. It allows you to really put embed someone in the near space yeah. and have all the more interactive things around you. And I think that's where they're missing a lot of the experience of being interactive with the environment or people is by they should they should embed more stuff around you and, and utilize this game. Yeah. But I've yeah. written some pieces in Discover magazine, whatever, I'm kind of trying to utilize this more. Yeah, in film in filmmaking, uh, you know, we we try to um, put stuff sort of in the front of the frame that's out of focus, which sort of gives that same effect of being semi-transparent. So they're mm-hmm. like having a sem, you know, having a blade of grass or bush right. or something that's very out of focus that you can kind of sort of see through, and that yeah. really adds a lot of dimensionality to to the frame or whatever you're framing. 
Um, yeah. And when you don't and have it, natural. it just, yeah. And that's natural too. Like, you know, like I've seen where the, where the, the filmmakers will, they'll focus on, let's say a chain link fence and it's just highly focused and something is blurry in the background. And then they suddenly just scan through it to watch the children playing on the playground, let's say, and the chain link fence all but disappears, you know, yeah. even though it's there. And we do have something, even with one eye closed, not with my finger, but if I have something that's more like a chain link, you know, like a thin thing, you get more, I don't know exactly what the, I have to think through those mechanisms, whether some of it's physics kinds of diffraction or something like this, yeah. and some of it might be um, some optical things in your eye that even allow you to, when I, when I can, when I focus one eye on you versus it, the way that the optics works, it, it, it like the camera, it makes it get fuzzy, and you're kind of seeing yeah. seeing through it even with one eye. Yeah. So, 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 but you're saying that that this is sort of a, a trick of the brain that that we're that we're seeing essentially around something, but our brain is 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 seeing that thing from the other eye as being semi-transparent. That's that's yeah. the trick essentially that our yeah. brain is pulling off. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so one of your newer ventures is into artificial intelligence uh could you talk a little bit about that what what you're working on there yeah so i've been working for the last eight years on a on emotional ai and mm -hmm. emotional expressions and origins of emotional expressions uh, <clears throat> so here the issue is trying to work out from first principles you've got two animals they don't have language they might possibly be lying to each other and can you work out from first principles that if I believe I should get this much of the pie and you believe that you should get a certain amount of the pie or whatever it is that, that there's always some disagreements about whatever it's about. And you have a belief and I have a belief. Can you, on the basis of this, start, start working out what range of signals you would have to have and I would have to have and what, uh, what the simplest kind of signals for back and forth would have to be such that we could potentially come to a compromise. Mm -hmm. What is the simplest possible compromise signaling system? And you can actually work this out from first principles. And it actually turns out to be a lot like poker as well, mm. it's sort of a generalization of poker. But the, and, and I'm not gonna try to, I think there's not enough time to explain it here, but let me give you an intuition coming from the other angle, rather than showing you why it's like poker. Let me just show you how poker itself is a an advanced compromise signaling system that doesn't require language and deals with liars, right? So I know something that you don't know, namely I've got cards and and you have information that I don't have. Right. Your, and of course, I believe my cards are stronger than yours and you believe your cards are stronger than mine. At least that's the implicit kind of assumption walking in. And of course, we could always fight about it. Now in real life, you could always fight about whatever it is that we're disagreeing about. And a fight would be either a physical fight or maybe it's just asking Judy who made the cake, who made the pie, how much of it was supposed to be for me versus Eric or something. She goes, no, you knew that it was two-thirds for you or something, whatever, mom. But in the fighting about it in poker is that we laid the cards down because someone calls later uh -huh. and we just figure out it. But very often, there's no call, and and you, I bet something, and then you match, and then you raise, and we go back and forth, and we never say anything. We never have to say anything. In fact, we often don't signal with it. We don't signal with our faces. Sometimes people do, but very often they keep a flat face. And the reason they keep a flat face is because they're doing all the signaling in another man. They're doing it with their, their chips. And when they're done, I might just put my cards down and I fold. I have effectively agreed, okay, Eric, you're, you're right. Your cards are stronger than mine. I may not truly believe whether I really, but anyway, I'm saying, okay, I'll go ahead and agree with you. Now, we've, we've settled a disagreement by virtue of signaling. We have a signaling system that allows us to settle a disagreement without a fight. So the question is, um, so it turns out that the signaling system that animals had, had to develop is, is actually 
one dimension higher than poker. So poker, you can never unbet in poker. You can only bet. In real life, you can unbet. And it turns out there's another dimension you can, it, uh, which I won't get into. It requires too much to say. But it's basically a variant on poker. And what you're betting is not money or chips. You're just betting social capital. Uh-huh. So you have to be able to bet social capital. And if I suddenly get angry in a discussion with you, well, I put social capital on the line. How do we know that I put social capital on the line? Because if I get angry and say, no, I want you know two-thirds of the pie, and then later my mom comes and says, no, two-thirds was for Eric. We had talked about that the other day. I'm going to lose face, right? The social community around me is keeping track. They're going to gossip. I'm going to say, Mark, when he says stuff so, so stridently that he's right, he's very often not right. You know? mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I lose social capital. Whatever I bet, you sort of get higher in their in their eyes, and I mm-hmm. get lower in their eyes. And they know like I've lost um, social. I've lost cool. Another, you know, I can't use those assets later. So it turns out the only reason that we can play this game, it only works for social animals. It's not going to work for animals that don't have any social groups because there's there's no oh. social capital to play. Which right. is also what goes wrong with Twitter and things like this because you end up with <laughs> different worlds that are communicating. Each of them have their own social capital currency. Sure, sure. They don't give a crap about the other people's <laughs> social capital currency. And so everything can go haywire and something like this. But where it works well evolutionarily was when you have a social when you've got a social network that's paying attention and gossiping, Interesting. then these signals all, so it changes the way you think about ex- emotional expressions. But yes, it, it does. Yeah. Four-dimensional space of emotional expressions with all this rich kind of structure of betting and which ones are best. And, it, then, and then you can ask, do we have, in fact, emotional expressions that fits all of these massive range of predictions? And it turns out that it does. Oh, so wow. That's, that's, that's fascinating. Um, so so fascinating. on the emotional AI side, yeah. Now you can actually, it, it has sort of the machinery that underlies what you need to know if you're going to have a, 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 a machine or Siri that's knowing how to interact with you. The, it needs to know that if it's going to behave like this or that Mark, by yeah. virtue of saying that, has just put in a whole bunch of social capital. Maybe she, this, you know, maybe yeah. Siri wants to always be, you know, submissive because that's the role she is. In which case, she wants she's just going to back down because otherwise she'll humiliate me. And she realizes that. So whatever. She, on the basis yeah. of understanding what these things mean in terms of whether you're likely to get embarrassed and all of these kinds of implications, it allows the software to act intelligently given its whatever range of purposes it has. Uh, so it's so it's not just looking at whatever whatever's at stake the pie for example it's also looking at this other dimension which is this social capital dimension and right. that that you could measure that in in a in a bunch of different ways I think that's really interesting fascinating yeah. and it just sort of happens for free I, I, I you know there's I used to say that I, I we didn't talk about it today my my theory about why we see illusions sort of I have this grand seven by four table that the classical geometric illusions are one of them. I have to give a TED talk on that. And it turned out I realized you can generalize it to like all these other kinds of ranges of stimuli. So it's a sort of beautiful table that has just sort of illusions in each one that sort of predicts this classical. And it's really pretty. So it's a, the kind of thing that you want like on a tombstone etched in. Yeah. But this one's even prettier. I don't know how to. So it's just from, as a theorist, when you're starting from almost nothing and then you can explain, the most that you can explain with the littlest stuff is like, you know, yeah. That's, yeah. that's your wet dream as a theorist. And it's just really beautiful. So. Now, trying to explain it in a book that's enjoyable to read is, you know, is another whole nightmare. So <laughs> yeah, I love, I love that. I love the, the concept that we can explain complex, uh, what, what looks like very complex behavior or phenotype or whatever from, from these very basic first principles. I mean, it's, I, love right. that, I love that sort of stuff. Um, that's probably a great place to stop. Um, before we sign off, where can people find you and find your work? Uh, Chang Gizi, 
uh, which actually comes from Genghis Khan, Chenghis Khan. And just, ah. um, so Chenghis, Chang, and then I-Z, Chenghis.com <laughs> is sort of my standard website. So, okay, great. And you're on uh, tw- pro- all the social platforms, I believe, Twitter, Instagram. Um, I am, yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. All right. Thanks so much, Mark. And thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Uh, always interesting. And uh, hopefully we can do it again in the future. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Let's make it less, less than 10 years. <laughs> Won't have any hair left or it'll be all gray. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine's, mine's gone. So uh, <laughs> anyways. Uh, all right. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, good to see you. Well, that's it for this show. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Email us at feedback at sciencecentric.com. Also, don't forget, you can support future episodes of this podcast by heading over to sciencecentric.com support and making a donation or purchase. The Science Centric Podcast is a FlowSpark Media production. Our audio engineer for this episode was Alexander James. Guest booking was handled by Melissa David. Our intro-outro music comes courtesy of BitBasic. Thanks for listening, and until the new decade, I'm Eric Olson. Mm-hmm.